Well, you guys, we're in the end of our first John study, and we're looking forward to Jonah. And I'm super excited about turning the corner and going to Jonah with you. First John has been focusing on us, and on us is the church. And if you are a visitor or you have yet to put your faith in Christ, maybe through some of this stuff of First John, you've wondered, is that really the church that I see? As we turn toward Jonah, what we begin to see is not only the heart of one of God's prophets, but we see the heart of God for the world. And it's really exciting how that's going to unfold before our eyes this fall. But before we get there, we have this passage. And honestly, I think if I had been able to shape it, I would have chosen this passage to be the last passage. I've grown to love this passage. The first time I read it, I thought it was a little bit like John Lennon's song, All You Need Is Love, and and that this repetition of love over and over is just thrown at us. And we might walk away from us thinking that John has gotten a bit messy in this section and has just thrown the bucket of love on us and washed over us so that we realize and we walk out, all you need is love. If you were to go through this passage and circle the number of times love is noted, it's 27 times. John Lennon beat John, the apostle. He put it 29 times in his song, All You Need Is Love. But what I want you to see this morning is that John has actually sharpened the pencil on love. He has put the point on love. He has defined love for us so that we might get what is the main point of this passage today. This is the main point. Are you ready? This is it. This is what you want to listen to. Our love for each other And I mean in that our love as Christians for the brothers and the sisters of Christ reveals God's identity and our own. I'm going to say it one more time. Our love for the brothers and sisters in Christ reveals God's identity and our own. I've got three parts to this sermon. All right, here they are. True love defines true lovers. I'm going to show you how that works in this first section. The second section, true love creates true lovers. And then finally this, true love insists or requires that we be true lovers. Let's look at this first part, okay? True love defines true lovers. This is in verse 7 through 11. I can't think of this word true love without thinking of the minister and princess bride. So if I start saying love instead of love, and if I say love and true love, you'll know exactly what I'm getting after. But John wants us to think about true love for a minute. Notice what he does in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. He is defining the origin of love. He says that that love proves, either in its presence or in its absence, whether or not we know God and have been born of Him. And then ultimately, he says in verse 8, he kind of drops the mic and says, anyone who does not love doesn't know God because, and then he says it, God is love. Now the Apostle John says three things that God is in either his gospel or in his letters to the church. He says that God is light, and we've read that in chapter 1 of 1 John. Verse 5, he says that God is light, and in that light, we are exposed. And glory of all glories, he exposes himself. 
When Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, John writes that Jesus says to her that God is spirit as well. And what you're going to see here is that John weaves all three together so that we might understand true love. Love that originates from God. And I want you to listen to this definition of what true love is. Whether you're a Christian or not, I want you to listen to it. True love has a definition. We see it in verses 9 and 10, don't we? In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation of our sins, or for our sins. don't, Don't get tripped up on that word. It means wrath absorber. The one who would absorb God's wrath. And it'll twist your mind to imagine that God himself absorbs his own wrath so that we wouldn't have to. It's amazing. So how would we define love? What's the definition that we would come up with out of verses 9 and 10? I'd say it like this. God's love is active. In fact, it's not just active, it's proactive. It reacts first, right? It's life-giving so that we might have life through his son. And then finally, it meets our needs. What's our need as human beings? Before a holy God, that his wrath that's righteously poured out towards sin, that's rightly poured out towards sin, would be absolved. That it would be completely absorbed in Christ. We also see John define it in chapter 3, verse 16, when he says it like this, By this we know what love is, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. We see that sacrificial life-giving, right? And that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, This idea of laying down lives, of sacrificing, is in John 3, 16 as well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What do you think about that definition of love? Love is active, it's life-giving, and it meets needs. I think all of us who are present here, whether we are believers or not, would say, that's a pretty good definition of love. Now, the challenge is understanding how John can say that if you don't know God, you don't love that way. Because you might be sitting here and saying, look, I don't profess faith, but I think I can see that love in my life, and I know that I see it in others. And many of you would say, I know that there are people outside of the church whose love is active and life-giving and meets needs. But see, love, true love, doesn't just have a definition, but it also has an object. And this is what I want you to hear in this section. That it has always been the scandal of true love. That the scandal of true love has always been its object. What does verse 11 say to us? Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The scandal of true love isn't the definition of love. All of us as human beings go, that's a good definition of love. The scandal of true love is the object of that love. Us, right? And it's been that way throughout the scriptures. In the Old Testament, Israel was proclaimed by God not to be the greatest, the most numerous, but the smallest and the weakest. In this prophet Ezekiel, he actually sees God's people 
as an abandoned child at birth left in the desert with such tremendous need. Well, the Bible begins to unfold to show the the real quality of humanity when it talks about us being self-centered. Israel isn't three days outside of Egypt before they become ungrateful for God's intervention in their lives. And really what unfolds in Scripture is that because of our sin, we are God's enemies. And because of our sin, we have actually died in our ability to volitionally choose God. You see, the object of God's love, of true love, is what is the scandal of true love. We look at the world and we know what it means to love and admire something. We know what it means to desire something and call that love. But we don't know what it means for our love to be oriented around ungrateful enemies. And this is the reality of true love that we have to deal with. You guys know the movie Les Mis and you know the story about Jean Valjean and when he gets out of prison uh, you know, I can't remember if it was 12 or 19 years. Those of you who love Les Mis can correct me later. I don't remember. But he finds himself with a yellow piece of paper. He can't work. He doesn't have anywhere to sleep. He gets kicked from one place to another, and he finds himself at the priest's home. You know the story that he steals the silver, and he runs away, and that the, that the police come and bring him back. And, and, and the priest actually says, no, the silver's yours. And in fact, you left the candlesticks. And, and Jean Valjean is amazed, and the police go, and they're amazed. And so they walk away, and they leave Jean Valjean. John and this great line that says, you know, with this silver, I have bought your soul and I give it back to God. And that is the illustration that we often use to get this. But Hugo knew it needed to go further because the next scene is Jean Valjean walking away in complete and utter shock and finding himself in the woods. And there in the woods as he contemplates, what does it mean that someone just did this for me? A little boy walks by, a small little boy, a chimney sweep who has a tiny coin in his hand and he's flipping the coin and he comes and he trips over a rock and the coin rolls underneath Jean Valjean's foot and instinctively he stands on the coin and the child begs him and says, give me back the coin and Jean Valjean goes, no, and the child begs again and he goes, go away and Jean Valjean finally stands up and in his ominous figure scares the child off. And suddenly, Jean Valjean sees the depth of his depravity. That even in the light of the kindness and the mercy, yet his heart is so dark. And it's only then when he sees himself in the end a thief that he understands that he brings nothing to the table. Mita and I were getting married, and you may have heard me tell you this before, I went to Mita weeks before and said, you don't understand, I have nothing to bring to this table. True love and being the object of true love means that we bring nothing to the table. And John says here that you and I are the objects of God's love, and therefore I am the object of your love. And you are to be the object of my love. We are to love one another because of God's love. 
The second thing that I want you to see is that true love creates true lovers. And the natural question is, how is that possible after you define me like Jean Valjean? The question is, how do we go from Jean Valjean to Jesus Christ? How does that transformation take place? Verse 12 says this, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And this is what I want you to hear. Are you ready? This section, true love creates true lovers. Our love for each other is proof of God's abiding presence and the effectiveness of his love. It does not mean that if we love one another, then God decides to abide with us. No, what he's saying here is that God abides with us and his love is at work in us. And the proof of that is our love for each other. John's logic is really tight here. Listen to it. It is given by the gift of the Holy Spirit. By this we know that we abide in him, verse 13 says, because he has given us of his spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit means that God's presence is with us. John has told us already that because of what Jesus did, we have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. John has said that it is this gift of the Spirit that is God's very presence in our lives. It's this gift that John says in chapter 3 enables the disciples to give testimony about who Jesus is. It's this gift of the Spirit that enables John to write John chapter 1, 1 through 4, which says that which we have seen, which we have heard, which we have touched, we proclaim to you. It's the gift of His Spirit that in verse 15 says allows us to receive that testimony and it enables us to confess Christ. Therefore, He's able to say in verse 16 that because we have come to know and believe God's love for us, it is proof that God is love. You see, true love creates true lovers by God abiding with them. But not just that. The Holy Spirit actually applies God's love. In verses 17 through 18, it talks about that love being perfected, doesn't it? It says that there in verses 17 and 18, by this, love, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in the world. God's love completes its goal. It is perfected by transforming us from his enemies to his children. That's what it means that God's love is perfected with us. God's love is completed in us as it transforms us from his enemies to his children. The result of that is that we have confidence at the day of judgment. And the reason for that is right there in verse 18. Because in this world we are as he is. What does that mean? Well, he's told us in John 3 that we're his children. Paul later tells us that we have been destined to be conformed to the image of Christ, that we are, are becoming 
the very thing that we already are. This idea that we are dead in Christ and Christ is alive in us, that we are in right relationship with God as Jesus is, so are we. In the sensation of that reality, the way that true love creates true lovers is the absence of fear. Listen to verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. The sensation of being created, a true lover. The absence of fear. Can you imagine it? Since Adam and Eve, human beings have been afraid of God. And maybe you still fear God. Fear in the way that distances you from him, not the fear that draws you toward him. But fear that says, I don't really believe that he loves me. The same fear that oriented Adam and Eve's mind. But here, fear is driven away by perfect love. And not only the fear of God that's driven us from him, the false belief that he doesn't love us, but we don't even have to be afraid of death anymore. As Andrew was saying in his sermon a few weeks ago, this whole idea that we would organize our lives around things that we have to complete disappears if you believe that eternal life has been given to you. That God's love has given us eternal life and sonship. I grew up watching this television show, Children Called the A-Team. And it's this great show. You'll have to go on whatever that ancient TV station is to get it. But the head of that team when everything would come together at the end, whether it was by accident or not, he would say, I love it when a plan comes together. And I want you to know that that's what this verse is about. God's love that a plan has come together, that his love has been completed in transforming us from, true, or from, from enemies to his children. And this sensation of the loss of fear. Listen, even if you're not a Christian, you ought to want to live without fear. Wouldn't that be great? Listen, this is the end of this. When we know ourselves to be the object of God's affection, we are then freed to love. This is the last point. I'll finish with this. True love insists or it requires true lovers. This is from verse 19 20 and 21. We love because he first loved us. The implication that John is saying is he's saying we have, we truly, our ability to truly love is a reaction to having been truly loved. Verse 20, he says that indifference to our brothers and sisters makes us a liar. And the other liars in scripture are people who deny Jesus and who ultimately deny that they're even sinful. Right? But he says that we must love those whom God loves. We must love each other. Do you know what we cannot say to each other? We cannot say, look, I'm fine with Jesus. It's the church that I don't want to have anything to do with. It's the other people in this room that drive me nuts. I'm fine with Jesus, but I don't want to be associated with the church. John is saying no. If we understand God's love for us. We have to love each other. 
Our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ reveals who God is, the true lover. And it also reveals who we are, those who are transformed by true love. Look, here are the implications of this for you, Christian. For you, God's love works in your life in a concentric circle manner. It starts in understanding who he is and our responding to him, but it immediately means that we respond to each other in love. A love that is active and proactive and life-giving and meets needs. It is sacrificial for each other. That's a requirement. It's not that it's either or, that we love the world that way or the church that way. It's not. It's definitely both and, but there is an order, and don't miss that. The order is that we love one another. And the reason is, is because when human beings are transformed and love this way, the object of that love being ungrateful enemies, then God is glorified in the watching community around us. People stop and go, oh my goodness. I've never seen a church that loves each other that way. What's going on there? What does it mean for those of you who are here today and not Christians? I want you to know that this passage resonates with your heart, that what you recognize as true love is indeed true love. But John says it has to be partial because what is lacking in human love is the object of that love being ungrateful enemies. And only Christ offers that love. That's the boldness of this passage. What would I encourage you to do? Get to know a church community. I hope that you would get to know this church community and say, I've never seen a group of people who love like this group loves. The question is, can the love of God sustain such weight that it can take people like me and people like you and make us true lovers? I began to think of that song, O Love That Does Not Let Me Go, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go, rather, George Matheson, Moon's Son's, namesake. Do you know the story behind him writing that song? When he was 20, he was engaged to be married, and he began to go blind. And when he began to go blind, his fiancée left him. And to his detriment, his blindness forced him from being a scholar that he was to becoming a pastor. And his sister began to work with him day in and day out on his sermons. And each Sunday he would speak to over 1,500 people and his sister helped him. He was blind. He memorized everything. And then when he was older, about 40, his sister decided that she would marry. And the night before that wedding, his whole family had left him in his disabled state. And they were celebrating, and he wasn't with them, and he sat there. And there, in that place, wondering how is it possible to go on from here, he says that he wrote that song, O love that will not let me go, in five minutes. And that he needed no additions to that song. No edits, rather. It came out just as we sing it. Because it is the love 
of God poured out on us that is the power to change us. Listen to that last line, or the first line of that song. O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe that in thine ocean's depth, the ocean's depth of your love, my life's flow may richer and fuller be. God will be glorified in Newton and Wellesley and beyond when we love each other like this. And I promise you, it will result in the world being loved. But it has to go through this room. Pray with me.